Well, good morning. Good morning. morning. If I haven't had the privilege to meet you, my name is Ken Delage. I serve as one of the pastors here. Thank you for being with us this morning and joining us as we open our Bibles and consider God's Word together. Open with me, if you would, to Matthew 23. So imagine for a moment a deadly disease, a disease that ravages people and takes life away. And imagine that one of the primary uh, symptoms of this disease is that it makes it look like you don't have this disease. What a pernicious thing that would be. For there to be a disease that, that its very symptom hides the threat, hides the presence of the disease, and the worse you have it, the least you think you do. Such is the disease of pride in the hearts of men and women. We began last week to look at the issue of pride in our hearts in Matthew 23, and we're going to pick that up again this morning. Last week was kind of an overview. We're going to pick and choose a little bit this week. But if you were here, let me just give a reminder. We talked about the, the deadliness of pride, the danger that it is. And there were three dangers that we mentioned. The first, for the unbeliever, pride keeps us from repenting. And pride solidifies the unbeliever on their road to eternal destruction and an eternity away from God. For the believer, pride is still at work, and God gives in his word the warning to the believer that he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So pride invites the opposition and resistance of God in the heart and the life of the believer. And the third danger I already mentioned is that when you have it, you don't know you do. Pride blinds to the presence of pride. So we're going we're gonna to do something a little different this morning. We're going to look in Matthew 23, uh, two main sections to the, to the sermon. The first section, we're going to look at uh, some of the ways that pride manifests itself in our lives by looking at the Pharisees and how it manifested in their lives in Matthew 23. So what's, what sort of, what is pride after? What's it trying to do? What's its agenda in our hearts? And then we're going to take the second half. And just begin to consider, what's it look like to pursue humility then? How do, we, how do we put pride to death and begin to make friends with humility? But let's begin with the first half, pride's agenda. Pride's agenda. And we're going to see three different things that pride is seeking to do in us. And the first is that pride is after glory. Pride is after glory. Glory. I, I want to read a few verses together, so look with me if you would. Matthew 23, we begin in verse 5. Speaking of the Pharisees, this is Jesus talking, and he says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven 
Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. God's word. So the, the Pharisees were looking for honor. They were looking for glory. The text began, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Now, we got to understand what we have similar hearts to the Pharisees, but very different lives than the Pharisees, right? So they lived in a culture where the kind of cultural um, currency was religiosity, was godliness. And so they, they put on this front of godliness to be seen by others, to be honored by others. They loved being called rabbi in the marketplace and getting the best seats in the different situations. They even had these, these things that says they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. There was a particular religious garment that the Jews were to wear. The purpose of the garment was to remind the wearer that they needed God. The purpose of the garment was to humble the wearer to remind them that they needed God and that they were under God. Under God. But they used the garment as a kind of status symbol. And they adjusted the garment to kind of show off, almost like religious rank or something like that, that they could show off. So they turned this instrument, which, which was for their humility, into serving their pride. And they were after glory. And notice what they forgot in their pursuit of Glory. It says in verse 8, you're not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. They forgot that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. They forgot, in other words, that they're just like everyone else. They forgot that we are all equal before God. And they're trying to be disequal before God and exalt themselves over those who are rightly simply brothers and sisters. And then, not only, see this is how pride works, it's not content just to take glory from others. It's going to start there. I'm a little better than you here. A little better than you here. Right? Comparing with others. It's not content there. It ultimately goes to a comparison with and a competition with and a stealing glory from God. As he says to believers, call no man your father, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. They had forgotten that there is a God above them who alone is worthy of glory and honor. And so as they're seeking glory, they're seeking to steal it from God himself. This is what pride is after. So it kind of begins like this. Pride begins by, by um, if I can say it this way, you convincing you that you are better than others. Pride then continues. That's step one. Step two, you try to convince others that you are better than others. If that works, step three, you begin to convince yourself that you in some way compete with God. And step four, you begin to convince others that you deserve a little glory too. And you begin to sort of eclipse the sun, as it were, and stand between people 
and the glory of God they should be beholding. And we begin to steal it for ourselves. Pride is a big deal. It is a wicked sin. And it is after glory. Number one, it's after glory. Number two, pride looks down on others. Looks down on others. I'm going to read verse 16 and on, and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. I think it begins a little confusing. Woe to you, blind guides, this is verse 16, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing so I've said that pride looks down on others and it might not at first be obvious how does this talk about this but, but here's what they're doing they're playing games with the law they're playing games with the law they're setting up rules and games that they can win as the religious leaders so it goes like this if, if you make an oath on this well, you can break that oath. It's not a big deal. But if you make your oath over here, well, then that needs to be kept. And if you make this kind of oath, well, you can break that. But if you make this kind And rule upon rule that nobody else could really keep up with, but they could. And so they could break their word whenever they wanted. And it was no big deal because you know the rules that they had made. But if you broke your oath, well, you're just a wretched sinner who doesn't understand the way that God works. They played games, and the games they play with the law of God are games they could win. We do this, okay? Here, here's, here's all this is. It's taking certain parts of God's law really seriously and being dismissive of the others. So, what am I good at? Well, that's what's important in God's law. What am I bad at? Well, that's of lesser importance in God's law. You see? It's games. It's games with God's law. We all are tempted to do this. Your sin is worse than my sin. Right? Isn't that how we feel? Isn't that... Do you, do you feel that knee-jerk reaction? I feel that within me. Listen, if somebody comes to me and they struggle with a sin that I also tend to struggle with, I tend to be quite merciful with that. I tend to go, well, yeah, of course you struggle with that. That's really hard, you know? But if somebody were to come to me and I become aware of a sin that, that they're committing that I don't struggle with, ooh, just gross. Just, ugh, how could you even be tempted with that? I'm just tempted to look down my nose, stand upon my righteousness, assume that their sin actually is worse than mine. And so here are the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're tithing.
from their spice rack, mint and dill and cumin. I gotta say, like, that doesn't seem that hard. <laughs> like, but they were like really excited about it. They like, this was a big deal. Like, look how godly they are. And Jesus is like, yeah, okay, fine. What about justice and mercy and faithfulness? You're playing games with the law you cannot win. You are not winning. And God is not fooled by the games. But here's why we do this. This is how pride motivates, right? How is one sinner going to possibly look down on another? Well, it takes pride to do that, right? So pride gets to work and convinces us that our sin is not as bad as theirs. That way we can look down on them. It's really simple. This is what pride is about in our hearts. To, to convince us that other people's sins are worse than ours. Our strengths are better than theirs. So that as fellow sinners, brothers and sisters, we can somehow look down our nose at others. Number one, pride is after glory. Number two, pride looks down on others. And number three, pride hides its own sin. Pride hides its own sin. This follows from the first two. If you're going to look down on others, you better not have a real clear view of your own sin. And they better not have a clear view of your sin either. You're going to be looking down on them. So pride is going to be busy hiding what's bad about itself. Hiding its own sin. Let's look at verse 25 and following. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. You also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So if pride is after glory, it follows that pride must hide its own sin. And that's what we see here. They are cleaning the outside of the cup again, right? Looking good to others morally, but inside have taken no time before their God to get right with God and admit what's wrong and begin to work on it with the Lord. They are like whitewashed tombs. So there's, there's, a, there's a tomb. They've made it look beautiful. It's almost like a garden, but on the inside is rot and filth and sin reigns. So they are hiding their own sin. And it's interesting to me, even in our culture today, even as our culture moves further and further away from Christianity, there is still a hatred of sin in broad terms. We still do not admire sins in others for the most part. So if somebody is a, a slothful, they're not really a role model, right? We don't, we don't exalt slothful people. We don't exalt liars. Now, you might think, yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> but you know how it works. All the liars are trying to convince you that they're not liars. That's what they're doing. Nobody is simply glorying in the lying and trying to say that it's in itself good. We don't exalt somebody 
who admittedly just has no self-control in their life or who's just lazy. Yep, I'm just lazy. Well, that, man, that, that person's a role model. Now, you might think, well, we end up putting a lot of those on. That's true, we do. True, we do. But still those sins, everybody kind of see. You've got you to shade it. You've got to hide it. It's not, it's, not, it's not good to be lacking in self-control. So we hide these things from others. And in our pride, we even hide them from ourselves. We kind of go cross-eyed a bit when we're looking at our own sin. We just can't see it as clearly as we certainly can others because pride hides its own sin. All right, so there's pride's agenda. That's what it's after. This is the first half of the message, right? We talked about pride's agenda. Here's what it's doing. Pride is after its own glory. Pride is trying to look down on others. And pride will be about hiding our own sin or weaknesses or anything like that from others. Friends, pride is a deadly enemy. It is seeking to steal glory from God. From the God who made us, from the God who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And here's how it usually works. If you're a believer, you're not overtly saying, I want some of God's glory. God, you know, excuse me, right? It's not, it's not an overt kind of thought. But it is, it is present, it is happening, and it usually goes something like this, and I'll share with you where I have to battle it. When I preach, I desire God to receive glory. But somewhere within, man, I wouldn't mind 1%. I wouldn't mind 1%. He can have most of it. Gotta have just a little of what belongs to him and him alone. Evil enemy. Last week, I gave a quote, and I want to give it again so we remember it, by pastor and author John Stott. He says, at every stage in our Christian development, at every stage in our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. So how do we grow in humility? How can we put off pride and put on humility? Like clothing, like changing our clothing. Changing from pride to wearing humility instead. And that's what the rest of this message is going to consider. And actually, we're going to begin considering it in this message. And we're going to keep considering it next week. Because I think we need some time to consider some of these practices together opportunities to take a step forward in humility. So let me make sure you know where we're going because this, otherwise it's going to feel kind of choppy. What's going on? I'm, I'm going to do six this morning, six ways that you can grow in humility. Six opportunities that are going to come along for you where pride in all likelihood will manifest itself and you will have the opportunity to either be pushed along by pride or to put on humility and seek the Lord. So number one, 
first way that we can pursue humility. humility. Um, and these are first few are going to be all with our Christian brothers and sisters. What does this look like as a church to do? The first is admit your fears. Admit your fears. Here's how pride works. Well, pride's after glory, right? So how do, how do I get glory? Look strong. Look competent. <laughs> look like I've got my act together. Not look like I'm a complete disaster. Look like I've got life handled. I'm, I'm good. I've got no worries. got no problems that I, that I can't manage. Pride has us highlight our awesomeness. Recognize that. And with, when you're with your brothers and sisters, move the highlighter. Move the highlighter. And highlight an area where you need prayer. Highlight an area where you need to grow. Highlight an area where you are utterly dependent on God working. Highlight an area where where you need some counsel from someone. Admit your fear to your brother or to your sister. Admit your need. You know what's hard about admitting our needs? Is that it's admitting our needs. <laughs> it's, it's, it's implicitly admitting that we don't have all in ourselves to handle what we need to handle. When you come into church or care group, how do you view your brothers and sisters? Remember how the Pharisees, they treated their brothers and sisters as those they're trying to look down on, right? Or at least impress. Call me rabbi, right? How do you view your brothers and sisters? Friends, I got to tell you, there's, there's something deep within me. Always at work. Seeking, seeking to make me try to impress you rather than care for you. Seeking to, to make me try to impress you rather than letting you help me with what I need help with. I'm a weak man. I come in with burdens. I come in with fears. I come in with weaknesses. But what do I show? Strength. Capacity. Scripture says in Galatians 6 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do you let anyone bear your burdens? Friends, let me ask you, do you let any, who do you let bear your burdens? And if that list is non-existent, let me encourage you to use that as an evidence of pride's work. Remember we've said pride's hard to see, right? You can come in <laughs> seeing it. If you, if you don't do this, then you can see it. Uh-huh. Well, what is it that's making me not want to admit weakness in front of others? So number one, admit your fears. Number two, ask for help. Ask for help. I think this goes with the one before it. Um, but it's enough different. So let me ask you, in a church context, care group, whatever, what's easier for you? Signing up to help somebody else who has a need or sharing your need with the group? Me too. 
Because when I serve others and help others, yes, it can be inconvenient. And yes, serving is a, is a, is a gift and it is a, it's a good thing to be about. I'm not knocking that. But in serving others, I get to be the one who's strong. I get to be the one who has. To be the one who's competent. To be the one who's wise. To be the one who's giving. In receiving care, I'm the one who doesn't have. I'm the one who needs. I'm the one who's depending upon. Pride would stop me from revealing where I need help. Does it stop you too? Now listen, of course, there are areas in our lives where we have to be diligent, right? This is not a call to just, let's all shirk our responsibilities, you know? And hey, you know what I need help with? All my kids, here you go, you know? Like that's, that's not what we're talking about. I heard that thing. <laughs> For Faith's been, I don't need help with all my kids. They're wonderful. <laughs> Asking for help is the opposite of proclaiming our self-sufficiency. Pride would have us proclaim our self-sufficiency. Friends, who alone is self-sufficient? God above and God alone. Let him receive that glory. And let us get out of the way and admit that we admit what everybody else already knows about us, by the way, that we are not, in fact, self-sufficient. It is a step of humility that you can take. Okay, admit your fears, ask for help. Number three, encourage others. Encourage others. All right, what's pride thinking about itself? What's pride thinking about itself? <laughs> what is pride thinking? Pride thinks about itself. It is self-referenced and self-consumed. Pride might be thinking about what other people are thinking about itself. But that's as far as it gets to other people, right? Because pride is self-referenced, focused on self. Humility is considering others. Humility is focused on others. So one of the ways to cultivate humility in your life, in your heart, is to consider ways to encourage those around you. Who could you encourage in your life? This works anywhere, right? This could work in church. This can work at home. This ought to be working at home. This could work at your job. This can work in your neighborhood. This can work at the supermarket. Did somebody serve you well as they checked you out at the supermarket? Thank them and encourage them. It takes your mind off of you and puts it on someone else. Is someone a good leader at work? Then honor them for that. Thank you. I appreciate the way that you're leading this group. We're better off because of you. Is someone in your home always cleaning up, always serving, always helping out? Then, then look to that, point to that. Thank them for that. Take time to encourage others. This goes directly against our pride. Because what does my pride want to do? Wants me to be the center of attention and a little higher than you. What does encouragement do? Makes you the center of attention and lifts you up. Do it. Fight your pride. Lift someone else up rather than yourself. You can't 
be lifting them up and you up, really, at the same time. So take time to focus on others. And not only this, but part of the way that I look down my nose at others is that I become just so aware of everyone else's sin. All the problems, all the deficiencies, all the issues in others. Listen, if you, if you live in a family or ever have, then you know what I'm talking about. That it is easy, easy to see everyone else's mistakes, failures, sins, deficiencies. Why is that easy? Pride. Pride motivates us to want to be able to look down upon others. So when we look to encourage others, we are fighting that tendency. No, no, I will not just look for the negatives in everyone else. I'm going to find what's good and I'm going to praise it. And I'm going to encourage them for it. So admit your fears. Ask for help. Encourage others. Number four, celebrate evidences of grace. Celebrate evidences of grace. Now, this might take a little explanation. What is an evidence of grace? So this one applies to believers. Every believer has the Holy Spirit at work in them. Every believer has grace at work within them. An evidence of grace is simply an outcropping of that, right? You want to know evidence of grace? We are not who we used to be. And that is not a proud statement. That is a statement. All the glory going to God. Because the, the, the reality that a Christian can say, I'm not who I was, is entirely and 100% due to the grace and mercy and kindness and activity of God in our lives. We're not who we were because God is at work within us. So, when, so those areas that change are the evidences of grace at work within us. They're God's fingerprints on our lives. Dear saints, it is our job with each other to locate, see, and celebrate the evidences of grace in each other's lives. To, to tune our eyes in. Where can I see God's work in you? I want to I wanna see that. And then I want to help you see that too. Do you ever go a while and just wonder, is God at work in me at all? I do. Man, I'm so slow growing. I can see any change in this area forever feels like. You know how encouraging it is when somebody says, hold on, I see God at work in you right here. I see God at work within you. So, so you know someone who, who historically has been kind of short-tempered, but you, you see them respond patiently in a, in a situation that ugh, patience wasn't the necessary response that you were expecting. And you, but you see that. It's an evidence of grace in them. Someone comes to care group who's routinely kind of shy, but they share a burden and a need with the group, and they are walking in humility. You know what that is? That's an evidence of God's grace in them. Someone else in the care group stands up and says, I'll, I'll help with that. Let, let's talk afterwards. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help 
meet that need. And so they're serving. And you know what that serving is? That's an evidence of grace. If someone has a love for God, that's an evidence of grace. Someone growing in holiness, evidence of grace. Someone sharing the gospel when they're terrified to share the gospel and they did it anyway, that's an evidence of the grace of God. Our job is to see those and celebrate those. I see God working in you. When you said that, I was, I was so encouraged and aware that God is at work changing you. That's not who you used to be. Praise God for what he's doing right there. When that need came up and you met it, and I know how busy you are this week, that is God in you meeting that need for them and giving you the heart to want to do that. Now, look at how this works, friend. We see an evidence of grace. The person gets encouraged, right? The person gets encouraged because, wow, God's at work in me, cool. That's really good. I hadn't seen that for a few months. Thank you for helping me see where God's at work in me. So they're aware, they're encouraged, but you know, who's getting the glory? It's not them. What you're both doing is looking up. You're celebrating what he's done. Oh, God's helping us grow. God is present in our care group. Yes. Amen. It's so good to see that. God's at work in our church. Yes. Praise God. I'm glad I can see where that happens. Before I move on from this one. Parents. Create a culture of grace in your home. Create a culture of humility in your home. You will see your kids' failures and sins and weaknesses. You will see them easily and you will see them repeatedly. And as parents, you're called to address those. As parents, you're called to see those as well. But the other reason we tend to see those to the exclusion of other things is pride in the hearts of the parents. Pride in our hearts that we become overly aware of our kids' weaknesses or sins and far too under-aware of the work of God within them. Friends, is God at work in your kids? Then find out where. Look for it. Look for it. Look for it. I'm not talking to parents of three-year-olds. I'm talking to older. <laughs> talking a little older. Right? I'm about those where God's beginning to call them to himself. Where they've come to Christ and they're beginning to grow. The evidence of God's grace. Hey, buddy. Great job obeying. I know that was hard. That's God's work in you. Hey, sweetheart. I, I know your sister gets on your nerves. But when she just said that, you responded so patiently. That's God working in you. Good job. Maybe a teenager you're sending to go work in the yard. They love spending Saturday mornings working in the yard. <laughs> hey, I know that when you got up this morning, that was the last thing you wanted to do. But you responded so respectfully. Thank you. And that's God at work. Friends, 
if your kids are being drawn to Christ or if they have come to Christ, that means the Spirit's at work. Look for the ways. It's going to help you love them better because you're going to see some of these graces and it's going to be a great encouragement to them. This is a culture of grace. So celebrate evidences of grace. All right. Admit your fears. Ask for help. Encourage others. Celebrate evidences of grace. Number five. Question your innocence. Question your innocence. Now, this one uh, applies during a conflict, all right? So this is, uh, this is during a conflict. Now, let me say, this is in what you might call the run-of-the-mill conflict that you, that 40% of us have had this morning, right? Half of those on the way to church, right? Okay. So the, those kinds of conflicts that happen all the times in our lives. Now, there are other things in our lives that come around that I'm not talking about right now. The situation where you are simply the victim of someone else's sin, that is its own discussion, and we could talk about that at another time. I'm talking about garden variety conflict, often between husband and wife, often between friends, between you and your boss, between you and your kids, between you and your parents, right? This kind of stuff. All right, so here's, here's why I get in a conflict. <laughs> I get in a conflict when I know I'm right and I know you're wrong. Right? This is... All, amen. That's right. This is always the beginning of a conflict. Because if, if you're not wrong and I'm not right, there's no point in fighting. I only fight when I know I'm right and I know you're wrong. This makes conflicts a very difficult time to be humble. Because they always begin with the rock-solid conviction of my own rightness. And I just want to point out that pride is always sure that it's right. Always. And humility is willing to ask questions. Humility is even willing to question itself. Am I right right now? It's willing to question its own innocence in the middle of the conflict. So here's just an example. Pride's so well, so blind. So, so you're in a conflict and the person you're talking to all of a sudden is acting like you hurt them. Right? Like, what? Everything I said is true. Everything I said is right. I, 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 I didn't say any lies. I didn't say anything that was wrong at all. Why are they acting so hurt? See, the other person is aware of some things that you are overlooking, perhaps, like tone of voice, body language, vocal expressions, facial expressions. You know you can say everything right and really hurt someone. It's happened to you, right? And yet pride would have us stand on that one little... That one little patch of ground that I know I did right, I'm going to stand here and proclaim it and forget the fact that everything else that I was doing was a disaster. <laughs> and that, yeah, I had raised my voice. And that, yeah, my face was angry. And that, yeah, my body language was closed off. And the reason is I was sinfully angry and selfish with you. This is a hard one. Uh, 
humility is willing to ask the question, am I wrong? Or even probably this is a better one in a conflict. Where am I wrong? Where am I wrong? And then when it discovers that, humility is willing to say, I was wrong. Here's, here's where I was wrong. You're right. Everything I, everything I said was right, but, you, but you're right. I was angry. Whew. Getting that out is so hard. I was angry. You're right. I was selfish. You're right. Please forgive me. Question your innocence. All right, next week we're going to pick up with more of this and just kind of keep rolling in ways that we can put on humility. I want to do one more this morning. I think it's a great note to end on because it's between you and God. It's between us and God. It is a Godward opportunity for humility, and this one is give thanks. Give thanks. Friend, you can do this at any time, in any place, without anyone present. At any time, and in all circumstances, you can give thanks to God. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, here's the thing. Pride is simply not grateful. Ever. Pride is not grateful because pride is self-referenced. So I guess if, 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 if I could be grateful to me, then pride could be grateful. <laughs> but pride is self-referenced. So here's how pride works, right? If things are good, we tend to accept them as, well, yeah, things are good. That's the way things should be for people like me. Really? Things are good. Of course they are. My life should be good. I'm worth it. <laughs> Either that or pride will take credit for it being good. Of course I get good grades. I work so hard. Of course we have enough money. I work so hard. Of course I'm healthy. I work out every day. No room for God in pride's equation on the good days. On the bad days, well, pride just shifts the blame somewhere. Usually God, though often not in name, but usually pushing it up. This is not how things should be. I don't understand what God is doing here. I wish he would notice and fix this. What pride does? It grumbles. It complains. It assumes that it knows what is best and judges God when God doesn't get there for it. Humility remembers that God is God, not me. Humility remembers that life revolves around God and his glory, not me and my happiness. Humility knows that it doesn't know everything. Humility knows that God does know everything. Humility knows that God 
is wise. That God is good. That God is in control. Humility gladly sits under the wisdom of God. Not over and judging the wisdom of God. Humility, friend, cannot get enough of God's grace. Just can't get over it. Just can't describe it. Just can't understand it. Why was God gracious to me? Friends, let us recall for a moment together the grace of God to each of us. Let's recall the grace of God that we can cultivate gratitude to God, that we can demonstrate humility before God and give thanks to God. Friends, we were enemies of God. By our own actions, by our own choosing, by our repeated and willful and wicked sin against him and against others. And justice was on his side. He was estranged from us because of our sin. We were estranged from him because of his holiness. And we who had sinned against him, he chose to love. Despite all that we have done. So God chose to love the unlovable, the unlikable. But it's not just that. That is a big part of it. And praise God for it. Praise God that he chose to love those who were not loving him and who had nothing in themselves to be worthy of this love. But not only did he do that, but he did that at the highest possible cost. He did that at the cost of his own dear son. Sending his son to the cross to bear the justice that we deserve. Christ willingly going to the cross so that he could save and redeem a people for God out of his love for us. Um, that story should humble us. We contributed the sin that held him there. He the love that went there willingly. Friends, we have cause to be humble and we have cause to be grateful. Who can tell of this love of God? I tell you what, when I get ready to preach on the love of God and the grace of God, I am so aware of the weakness of words. Who can tell of the fathomless love of God? Who could explain his love for his people? And yet, we don't even have to explain it. We just get to receive it, even if we can't explain it. Glory to God! for his mercy to us. Glory to God for his grace to us in Jesus Christ for giving us such mercy, for giving us such love. Friends, we should be the most grateful people in all the world. Who is like us that knows the creator of the universe? We, before all people in the world, have reason to thank and praise and give honor to God. We have received the free and lavish grace of God. Friends, humility is grateful to God. Thanks be to God for his grace to us.
Mm. We're going to close with an opportunity to express our gratitude and thanks and praise to God. And let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray that even now you would protect your word. I've said that sometimes the word falls and the, and the birds of the air come and, and snatch it away. Lord, help us not just to be hearers, but doers of your word. Help us to walk forward and actively put on humility. And we admit right up front, we need your help and we ask for your help. Lord, I pray that in increasing ways, humility would mark our lives and our homes and our relationships with each other here and even this church by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name.